You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and this week I am coughing my brains out. I have been dealing with this stupid cold, or maybe it's corona. I have no idea what it is, but I just can't get this. It's just an annoying tickle. Every evening I'm coughing my brains out, and man, this uh, this episode that we just recorded... I had uh, had a heck of a time keeping my cough in, and I'm hoping I can uh, minimize that amount of feedback, but I'll f- apologize to you guys ahead of time because uh, <laughs> it's just one of those annoying things that I'm dealing with here, but I, I feel like a lot of people have been dealing with it. Um, had a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool thing happen this week, so I got, um, <coughs> excuse me, I got invited to come and do a little bit of consulting for a landowner, uh, kind of whisper down the alley thing happening with some other people and properties that I've worked with. Um, uh, let this individual know that, you know, I, I do, and I, I, like I said, I don't really talk about it that I do it, but every now and then I'll, um, you know, connect with somebody that, you know, will have me, uh, do some property consultant and set out a, a habitat and hunting, pre- uh, hunting property layout for them in their property. And I just did that this weekend and it was really unique situation. It was uh, actually one of my company's uh, clients. Um, You know, they're, they're uh, pretty good farmers and, you know, have some chicken houses and stuff, but they, uh, they have a section of their home farm that uh, they want to dedicate to hunting deer and trying to have the best hunting opportunity they can. It's a, it's a smaller prop uh, section of property. They don't really have a lot of wooded opportunity, but uh, what they do have, they've got, uh, you know, they're, they're already kind of holding some uh, some daylight activity of deer and they've already got the structure to set up for good hunting opportunity um, I, i'm kind of excited what's going to be but you know i'm, I'm going to have them uh use a they're either going to install a field border that they're going to pay out of pocket or they're going to use um the crep program and uh, use the field border program so a lot of people don't know this but if you own property and you have ag land in your in on your property you know a lot of people know that you can enroll your your whole field <coughs> into 10 15 20 year old crp crep program whatever you like to call it and you know put it into warm season grasses and things like that but a lot of people don't know that there's actually a field border program that you can take a, a 20 30 40 60 90 foot field buffer depending on that and you can turn it into a, a warm season grass or a cool season grass field border uh and th- like i said this is a, is a farming practice that is used because tree lines are less productive and it's a soil conservation thing and there's there are some wildlife benefits to it but you can get paid a pretty good chunk per acre and uh you know just keep in mind that it takes a uh, 43,560 square feet to make up one acre. And if you're, you're taking uh let's say you're taking a big no-till drill to plant that, let's say you get a farmer to, to take his 30 or 20 or 30 foot no-till drill to do a pass. It doesn't take long. You can rack the, the acres up and you can get paid to have that. And for this particular property, I was recommending that they ought to enroll in that. They can get paid, but they can have a warm season grass buffer that would stand and give them cover to access certain parts of their hunting property a little bit better. It would screen their food plots between the woods and the food plots that they're going to put on the edge of the field. Uh, it would really give them just a lot of 
better hunting opportunities. Um, so, so that was one thing that was pretty cool. Um, you know, being able to structure better access in farm country for this property, uh, adding food, you know, with the benefits of being a farmer, you have the equipment and the seed available. And, uh, I'm really excited what's going to happen with, uh, with that particular individual. I think there's a, a lot of fun things to come and, uh, I'm looking forward to the successes that they share with me over time. And kind of leads me into this week's episode. This week, we are speaking with somebody who, um, you know, over the over the past year or so, I, I've really been able to call my friend now. Uh, he's somebody that I've, I've worked with on, on, on our network and spoke with. Um, he's helped me out with the, the podcasting game and given me advice. We've talked deer hunting uh, a lot, you know, last fall, whether it was uh, talking with him on the deer camp episodes of the How to Hunt Deer podcast, or we were texting back and forth. It seemed like it was almost weekly that we were connecting and, you know, conversing about our hunting seasons. And uh, that's Josh Raley. And he is the host of the Wisconsin Sportsman and the How to Hunt Deer podcast, and you know he's he, we make the joke that he is the person who's most most likely to live in eight states in one year. He's been bouncing all over the place um, in his personal life, but he's he's finally wound up and settling down in the state of Georgia, and in doing so, he has taken up another position with whitetail partners and uh, you should you know check him out on instagram you know he's the the wisconsin sportsman the how to hunt deer podcast and whitetail partners georgia and he's doing some really cool property consulting and we're going to talk with josh um not a lot of specific things just a lot of general private land hunting concepts and consulting things because there's there's a the space of habitat and hunting consultants is much greater now than it was 10 years ago and talking with josh i just wanted to dissect his brain how he envisions a property how he communicates with those clients and then we we go into some specifics about this time of year talking about you know preparation with food plots invasive management we go on a a tangent a little bit about timber and hinge cutting and and i i asked josh a a question about what some of his pet peeves are and and we kind of explained the interpretation or the lack thereof in our industry um you know for people so we, we just kind of go down a couple rabbit hole discussions with that and talk hunting strategy throughout the entire uh, conversation in this habitat uh, habitat management property management conversation it was a really fun conversation josh is a smart guy and uh, i took a lot from it uh, from this conversation myself and i think you will too so and whatever you're doing uh this week and the weeks to come here do it in a safe manner. Uh, I hope you're giving plenty of opportunity and love and care to your loved ones and family. And uh, if you're able to get out and enjoy a little bit extra, I know this week um, I just I just celebrated my my first son's third birthday, and we are having a joint birthday party for both of my sons because my my other son's going to turn one in in uh, a matter of a few days here. So we're we're doing a joint birthday party, and I'm trying to do everything I possibly can um, and and put my boys first and I I stress that so much and I'm going to continue to stress that because priorities are important but I will say I got some work done at my place I did a little bit of consulting I'm fired up to do some more and I'm just it's just geared me up towards spring. The warmer weather is making me want to do some spring projects. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure you know where, where I'm coming from. I hope you guys are all there. I hope you're doing well. Uh, thank you again for, for tuning into this. Uh, re- real quick before we go to this episode, do me a favor. And if you've been listening to this a while or if you are just tuning into this episode for the first time, if you wouldn't mind reaching out to me. And, and let me know what you think of our show, what you think of this episode, um, any feedback you can give, topics of interest. I would love to hear any of that from you guys, um, You know, whether, whether you're new or you're somebody that's followed along with us for a long time. Uh, you can reach out to me at pawoodsmanpodcast at gmail.com. And then I'm also, um, I'm also available on Instagram. And that's at Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm easy to reach in both cases. 
And uh, I'd love to hear from you guys. I'd love to hear your stories. I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, it just you know, lets us know that uh, you're enjoying what we're doing with this show. So thanks again, guys. Let's get to this conversation with Josh. Hey, with us tonight is a good friend of mine and somebody we've had on the show in the past. It's uh, the, the man that is known to be all over the country at any given speak, at any given point in time, the Wisconsin sportsman, the How to Hunt Deer podcast, Mr. Josh Raley. Thanks for, thanks for coming on and chat with us tonight. Yeah, I mean, thanks for having me on again. And you know what? I hold that award that I received at ATA uh, very dear to, to my heart. <laughs> You know, most likely to live in what was it, eight different states or something like that? I think like that's that. how he worded it. Yeah, yeah, cool. most likely to live in eight states. So, but yeah, man, it's been good, and it, it's uh, honestly, it's been a lot of fun. I think it's contributed to you know a lot of personal growth and professional growth and uh, growth in my hobbies and and things I'm passionate about. So, um, I love it, but I'm really looking forward to settling down and being in one place for a little while. Yeah, I can't say I blame you. You've had a, a ton of so so I'm I'm kind of beating around the bush here, but you you were living in Wisconsin for a while. You're originally not from Wisconsin, but you you moved back down to Georgia, and you're you're, you're just moving all over the place. A lot of moving parts for you in this this past year. I mean, uh, what else has been happening in your world? Yeah, so um, you know, with this move came the opportunity for me to step away from what was my normal nine to five career. Uh, and step into the hunting industry full time. Uh, it was it was kind of at a point where, you know, I could either dream about it my whole life or and look back, you know, when I'm 50, 60 years old and say, man, what could I have done, you know, with that time? Uh, or I could go out and actually pursue it. And, you know, my wife and I had a conversation where it's like, hey, if you fall flat on your face in a year or two, just go back, get the job again. you know, go back to the life that we've known and have been relatively uh, satisfied and happy with. But now's the time to try it because opportunities like that don't come up very often. So with that move came a move into, um, you know, podcasting uh, as kind of the bulk of what I do, working with the network and kind of the rest of you guys, uh, herding all the cats, so to speak. Yeah, how's that part been, by the way? I have to to cut you off there, but that's be one that has to be a little bit of a headache dealing with all of us. No, it's it's really good. You know, uh, chasing everybody down from time to time can be a little can be a little tough uh, for content. But but I'll be honest with you, I'm I'm late as often as everyone else is. Um, like right now, my podcast was supposed to launch this morning, uh, and it did not. And so I'll be editing my show for the Wisconsin Sportsman tonight after we get off the air here, and hopefully that'll be ready to launch tomorrow. So I'm just as guilty as everybody else. I just know where my content is. I don't have to track myself down but it's been really good dan's a great guy to work for so you know i'd encourage any listeners um who maybe are familiar with your show who haven't checked out some of the other shows on the network there's a lot of great content coming out of the uh sports empire and dan johnson nine finger chronicles is uh just a good dude uh he's one of the he's one of the good ones in in the hunting space one of the guys who is uh what you see is what you get Oh, he definitely is. Like, you know, this is speaking completely positive about Dan, but the first couple times that I interacted with him, I seriously had no idea to take him because he is his own person. But at the end of the day, man, he would give the shirt off his back for you. I mean, he's a great guy. I've really, uh, I've enjoyed, I've taken a lot of advice from him, and I've really enjoyed my time. You know, I've had him on my show and conversed with him, you know, hunting-related, non-hunting-related. He's a a great guy, and, uh, you know, most of the people who I, I would, think have listened to my show have at some point dabbled in that show and i encourage everybody to uh, watch it so you're you're doing the wisconsin sportsman and the how to hunt deer podcast right yep yep both of those shows and the wisconsin show i knew that i would be returning to wisconsin several times a year i knew my time there as a as an outdoorsman as a sportsman was not completed and i knew that we had really built a community i mean we've got a ton of listeners that i interact with on a regular basis some listeners have become regular guests on the show. I had a guy, in fact, reach out to me yesterday on Instagram about the show. I gave him a call back when I'm on my way back from a, uh, a habitat consultation on a property. And we talked for, I don't know, hour and 15 minutes on my way home. Just never spoke to the guy in, in my life before, but just getting to know him. So 
it's been a really neat community to see form around that show. And so I knew I really wanted to keep that going for as long as I could and still, you know, still maintain that authenticity. And I think we've done a good job of that so far and looking forward to seeing how that, how that shapes, uh, shapes up here in the future. But I'll be back in Wisconsin uh, about 30 days from right now there to do some trout fishing and some turkey hunting. So looking forward to that. Good deal. Yeah, I think you've done a really good job with it too, Josh. I mean, you're a very well-spoken uh, host of your shows, and uh, you know, I can I can kind of echo that same relationship building that you've had with your show here. You know, we've got some dedicated listeners and some people that I've had those same communications with. And you know, guys, if you're listening to this, I really encourage that. You know, if you're listening to my show, if you're listening to Josh's show, like we love that feedback. We love knowing what you guys like, what you guys don't like. How, you know, how we can do it better, or j- just uh, you know, any any kind of reinforcement because this is a this this is a a cool way to just bring hunters together and stuff but yeah so so uh turkey hunting so you're uh are are you gonna be doing any turkey hunting elsewhere than than wisconsin are you just looking at only wisconsin this year yeah so i'm going to be hunting in georgia wisconsin alabama and depending on how successful i can be here in georgia potentially south carolina or tennessee Tennessee is actually higher on my list than South Carolina. Um, and then I've actually got a plan to hit Ohio on the way back from Wisconsin. Man, so, you got a turkey tour if there ever was. Yeah, pretty much. So so it'll go like this. So I'm going to open up March 25th and 26th with my kids here in Georgia. We got in on a little lease here. And with the youth season coming in a week early, my kids will basically be the only two kids in the woods. So I'll have the whole place to myself pretty much to get these kids a bird or at least try to get a, get a bird here in Georgia. Then season opens up here the next week for, for adults. So I'll be out trying to get a bird on the ground, maybe two, then off to Wisconsin. That season opens on the 19th, then down to Ohio, assuming I can kill a bird in the amount of time I typically do in Wisconsin, which is relatively quickly. Uh, Ohio opens up on the 22nd and if I can kill a bird right away in Ohio, which would be awesome, then I will likely try to hit either Kentucky or Tennessee. Good deal, man. That's a lot, a lot of moving parts there, but it's fun. I, uh, I used to love turkey hunting and don't get me wrong. I still do turkey hunting is something that it's, it's just that breakup in between the, the seasons and I do love working birds and calling birds but uh, with my with my career when I started as you know this job as a grass my busiest time when we're starting to roll corn planters out the first week of May when we're getting really really busy um, it's pretty time to time consuming um you know i'm pretty much strapped to my phone from sun up to sundown or, or i'm on the road i've done a lot of turkey hunting before work and i still try to do that like i'm one of my goals this year is i want to try to plan my my work schedule and my route that every piece of public land on the way to to my area that i'm going that i'm going to spend an hour in the woods and i want to make that a priority not not because i need to kill a turkey so bad i just wanted to try to like push myself to to expand outside of my comfort zone a little bit and then kind of see where that leads for other aspects of hunting um but yeah it's it's just been a little bit tricky to put the amount of time into turkey hunting that i i could when i was a kid and uh, that's just the nature of the beast with uh with the career choice that i have yeah, when does that season open up for you guys there in PA? Is it May 1? It, it's almost always, it's like that last weekend of April, first weekend of May, depending on how the Saturdays lay. I think this year it's like the 29th of April, I guess. is, is that, I think that's a Saturday this year. Uh, no, it's May 1st, May 1st this year. Okay. Gotcha. So, yeah, May 1st. Um, no, April 29th, April 29th, my bad. Um, and then I, I typically, what I was I was trying to go to Virginia earlier because Virginia opens uh, in early April, and uh, it's kind of like the calm before the storm for, for work for me, and it just didn't work out this year with some family obligations. So I'm hoping to get back into the turkey hunting uh, aspect here uh, at some point in my life, but right now it's just slow. If I can get out and kill one bird in Pennsylvania, I'll be happy. Yeah, man, I... I love deer hunting. I really, really do. Deer are my number one. I would rather kill a big buck than a gobbler any day. But turkeys make me get weird. Yeah. Like they do something to me where I, 
man, call in sick to work. I forgot to pick my kids up from school one day because I was turkey hunting. Um, you know, I just won't say where I'm going. I'll just leave to go look at turkeys strutting in a field somewhere. I mean, they, they just make me act. They make me act like a junkie. I mean, they really do. It's. I think it's just like, for me, it's that lull between the craziness of deer season. Like I, like right now, I'm I'm still in whitetail mode, and I'll be in whitetail mode clear up until turkey opens, and I might get a little bit wacky for a few weeks there, but I'll go right back into thinking about you know how I'm going to prepare for turkey, you know, for for, for my fall, for for deer season and for bear season, and <coughs> there's just a, a ton going on. I've, I have not been able to do the the level of stuff in the off season this year that I normally do, but you've been out and about in a, in a lot, whether that's for your own or, or for, for something else you got going on here. So kind of tell us a little bit about uh, the the other role that you've uh, has consumed your life here. Yeah. So uh, fortunately I have been able to be out a lot. A lot of that though has been on the ground of uh, other landowners, clients that, that have chosen to, to work with me as uh, part of Whitetail Partners. So if you're on Instagram at all, you've probably seen Whitetail Partners uh, started in Wisconsin. And uh, essentially what we do is Whitetail Habitat and Property Consulting, making designs to help you get the absolute most out of your property, change, to, to change your property for good, to set you up well long-term, to have predictable deer movement on your property which is, you know, one of the first steps of, of having consistent success from year to year to year. And so I met Sam, the owner of Whitetail Partners, when I lived in Wisconsin. Obviously grew up, you know, doing all the the food plotting things, all the, the, the we had, you know, very large hunting leases when I was a kid. That was always how I wanted to spend my birthday weekends was we'd go to the camp and, and we would literally just work. You know, that was... That was my idea of a fun birthday weekend was going up to the camp and, and doing work on the property. So I've always had a, a desire to, you know, manipulate the habitat to make it better, not only for my hunting, but also for the wildlife. So when I got up to Wisconsin, I met Sam, had him on my show and Sam said, you know, what? why don't you start, why don't you come with me a couple of times? You know, you're passionate about this stuff. You love doing it. Why don't you come with me and we'll, we'll see, you know, what you think of, of what I do. And so we did. We we did that for a couple of times there that that spring, and that that summer we ended up getting moved down to Georgia, where you know we had this conversation. I was like, Sam, this has been great, man. I've been able to work with you. I've been able to learn a lot from you. Uh, unfortunately, I've got to move. And then after we after we we finished up with our move, I called Sam. We were just talking on the phone. And we he said, Hey, well, how about we expand Whitetail Partners? down into the south because i've not only got you but i've got a couple of other guys that i know as well and we may grow this to offer our services that uh in my opinion are some of the best in the business and so uh, we we now offer um habitat consultation in georgia tennessee ohio michigan and wisconsin and then obviously in the surrounding states as well we all cover you know, a three to four hour roughly window around our home. That's really exciting. And one of the things I like about you in that position, Josh, is you, you have a really diverse hunting background from your areas in hunting the south, hunting Wisconsin, hunting in the east. You've got a really good um, well-roundedness about you as far as your hunting experiences in whitetail and a good mix of private land and public land hunting. And I think that's one of the things that's going to be a key component for you in moving forward with your knowledge of whitetail. So, <coughs> excuse me, one thing that I, I find so interesting um, is the thought process and the communication. Like when you listen to people who are, um, how do I want to word this? They are, they're really good in their profession at what they do, whether that's public land grinders or private land, you know, habitat nuts that also kill big deer um they say the same thing in a lot of times a very very different context it's really hard to pick apart um what's what you can use in your own situation based on where people are coming from and i I think you probably know where i'm coming from but but i want to ask you the question um and kind of go from there uh 
what does an aggressive hunter look like when you're talking about private land hunting versus public land hunting? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And one that I don't think I've seen discussed very much out there in the, in the hunting space. For me on a private piece of ground and for, you know, the, the, whether it's the private farms that I hunt or clients that I'm working with, the number one thing that I want to manage is the pressure that they're putting on that property, because that's going to be the number one thing that has a huge impact on their, on their hunting and the quality of their hunting. That doesn't mean though, that I don't help them or, or encourage them to hunt aggressively on private ground. And when I say aggressive, what I mean by that is number one, being willing to, to move around quite a bit, uh, not just getting in the habit of like, Oh, I really like that box blind over there. So I'm going to go sit there every afternoon. Um, you know, I, I'm shifting with what the deer are telling me. I'm not being passive and waiting for the deer to come to me. I'm being aggressive in that I'm going after where the deer are. Number two, when the timing is right, you know, um, and you'll hear the public land guys talk about this a lot too. When the timing is right, I will encourage clients to swing for the fences. You know, you get a picture of that buck hitting that food plot um, 15 minutes after dark, 30 minutes after dark. And you've got a travel corridor that you have cut in and made, you know, the, the best option for travel around. The, and, and it's close to some bedding that, you know, you've cut in or you've put in or you're f at least familiar with where the deer are bedding. I'm going to encourage that client to hunt that real, real close. Um, now, we're also going to have preset stands a lot of times, though. Um, simply because I, I prefer if, if a client doesn't, if it's not public ground, they don't have to take the stand out with them. Why bother with the noise, right? Like if Absolutely. you've got, if you've got 150 acres, like the client that I was working with yesterday, um, you've gone through the process of buying 150 acres, another $5,000 to cover that thing in good millennium tree stands. No big deal. Just a drop in the bucket at that point. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Might as well have one everywhere everywhere you're going to want one um but yeah to me to me that's what it is you're 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 going after the deer and you, you're not afraid to step into those areas that they might consider uh their bedroom now with that said we also do set aside sanctuary areas on on these properties in fact this one yesterday had a big one it's 150 acres roughly 70 of that is sanctuary area but you better believe that I've got him hunting right on the line of that sanctuary in several spots where those are what I consider sort of his max aggressive um, locations. I really try to keep my mind, um, you know, when I think about a property, I try to think about maximizing properties to be as much of a sanctuary as possible and giving the illusion that deer are not being hunted, even though they are. Um, so, yeah, you, know, you had you you talked about Whitetail Partners and you know a very very well known, well established, respected um, group of consultants in this industry, and you know, 2023 compared to 2013 or 2003, you know the the level of consultants and um, you know habitat wildlife hunting, you know, whatever you want to call it, and th that that space has been really really filled up in that time frame compared, you know, when we're comparing to now. And I think when people are listening to different ideologies, different thought processes, it can get really really confusing trying to just navigate certain parts of the conversation and you know fr from habitat improvement to hunting strategy and one of the things that i'd like you to talk about a little bit is travel corridors mock scrapes things like that that i think get so much emphasis in your opinion is that actually a habitat improvement or is that just a hunting strategy enhancer yeah i would i would say a lot of those things are hunting strategy enhancers. And, you know, when you look at the habitat space, there are, um, I, I like to kind of break it down a little bit for the consultants that are, that are out there into almost three separate categories of consultants. Uh, on one end, you've got the guys who are all about the forestry. And when I say all about the forestry, they're all about maximizing that timber value on your property because, Hey, who doesn't like a little bit of money back in their pocket 
with, you know, what for many of them is their most expensive investment that they're ever going to make, right? Like having that thing turn a little bit of money back to you is fantastic. So you've got those guys that are, you know, number one thing on their mind is always timber value. Then you've got the sort of other set of guys who for them, it's all about the habitat. It's all about improving every single square inch of that property. And that's all fine and good. I think conservation and taking care of that habitat and what I would consider true habitat improvement uh, is a very, very great thing. My problem with the way some can go about it is it can make hunting more difficult for you than it needs to be. For instance, um, you've got a 40 acre section of pine timber here on, on, let's say you're down south. And in that 40 acre section of pine timber, one of the best things you can do for the habitat itself is to run a fire through that whole thing every third year, right? That sends a flush of new growth. It puts bedding cover all over the place. It puts food all over the place. Those are all very, very great things. But when you've got a 40 acre pine plantation that is monotonous throughout, yeah, it's good habitat, but it's not necessarily good hunting. It can be really difficult to put your eyes on a target buck when you've got just when it's improved absolutely everywhere. You know, no one place is better than another. Then that can be a little tougher for your hunting. Then you've got an, another group, which is where I would kind of put myself, where for me, habitat is incredibly important. On the, the plan that I just delivered, this individual with 150 acres here in Georgia, I absolutely recommended that the next guy he gets out there, now that he's got his plan in hand from me, the next guy I want him to have out there is a forester to come out there and tell him what to do with his TSI. But I want him to hand the forester our hunting strategy and design plan to say, Here's the plan. Like, here are my, you know, hunting strategy implementations that I'm putting in certain places. Here are the habitat improvements that I'm going to make, meaning bedding, food plots, edge cover, uh, native plantings. You know, here are the, here are the habitat improvements I'm going to make. And here's this big, huge chunk, Mr. Forrester, that you've got to play with. Help me think through how to perform TSI to the best, uh, with, to have the best result for both the wildlife and my pocketbook. So my suggestion is just always start with that hunting strategy first so that you know how to set your property up how you want it. And then the rest of the pieces are a lot easier to put into play after that. It, it definitely comes down to you, you need to have some serious conversations with yourself, with, you know, whoever's financing about it, about, you know, the property, whether your partner is with yourself and you just got to convince your wife that it's okay. But you really have to evaluate what are your goals with this what, you know, and be structured and detail oriented because um, that's going to determine how everything else, you know, fluctuates. And I agree that you have to work with everything you have. Um, you, you were talking about creating quality habitat and making it a sea of monotonous quality habitat. Um, I compare that to a sea of monotonous hardwood timber in northern Pennsylvania where we've got big hardwood mountains. We talk about how hard it is to hunt deer in, a, in an environment like that. And people that don't have the experience of hunting quality habitat think, well, it's got to be easier to hunt the, the, the monotonous quality habitat because there's going to be more targets right and my experience has been when you confine it to a border and you are continuously trying to access a property whether it's 40 acres 150 acres whatever and you're tracking deer to that parcel and just to chase them off because it's so hard to access without bumping them I actually think that's almost worse than hunting in a place where there's a low deer density of monotonous, you know, low quality timber because you're not bumping the deers consistently. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, when we're when we're looking at a plan that that we're preparing for a client, one of the things that we're taking into consideration is that hunter access. And we're not going to put uh, habitat improvements that are going to concentrate deer in areas where we want to walk through. So those will be sections of the property where I say, hey, it's great to have wonderful habitat all across this property, but I don't want it 
in this acre and a half chunk because I want to be able to use that for access. I want to park my vehicle there. I want to walk up this road right here. I don't want this to be great whitetail habitat right here. I want it to be devoid of whitetails as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I want them to be on the other side of the ridge where I can hunt them effectively. That's a great point. So walk me through. So somebody calls you, Josh, and, and they want to work with you. And, you know, maybe they've hunted this property for five years. And they and you know you, when you show up, you're going to you're going to get bombarded with questions. And, oh, I've, I've hunted this property here. This, we've done this this year. I've, I've seen good bucks this year. This is where we see. I had this good hunt over here. I had, uh, you know, this is what I planted this food. But what do you think of this food plot? And you go through all this this uh, chronological I shouldn't even say chronological. It's usually just a, a mumbo jumbo mess that just gets spewed out. You know, what's happened on this property in five years? And you're, you're trying to absorb as much of that as possible. But really, I want to start, where do you start with the foundation in that visit and trying to assess that property? You know, let's just say we've already established our goal is to maximize deer hunting opportunity and, and hopefully, you know, the best buck in the area, something like, so, you know, goals along those lines. So w- with all that into consideration, how are you beginning the first steps yeah that's a good question so you're right that first phone call can often be like drinking from a fire hydrant (laughs) so uh you know the first thing i'm going to do is just listen i want to hear all those old stories um you know one of my favorite stories i've got a client that i've worked with who one of their favorite spots on on the property is they call it ted's place right and i think our first conversation on the phone we had, we talked for probably 25 minutes about Ted's place, which is just a little spot on the property with a food plot where uh, Ted, one of the uncles, has killed a lot of big bucks. And, you know, and I just listen. I sit back and I listen. And uh, very quickly after that, though, we schedule a follow-up phone call that's going to have a little bit more structure to it. And I've got a list of nearly, it's a little over 60 questions that I'm, that I'm going to walk them through. And the reason I'm going to walk them through these questions is because I can ask anybody, you know, like yourself, Mitch, what, what are your goals for this property long term? And you might think right away, like you said, maximizing hunting opportunity. I want to target the top 20 percent of bucks in this area, and I want to be able to do that on a consistent basis. That's great. Awesome. But I'm going to have a lot of follow up questions to that that help you really drill down into what your goals are. You know, do you have kids? Yeah. Do your kids like to ride ATVs? Well, yeah. Yeah, they do. Okay. Is there any water on the property? Yeah, there's a farm pond over there. Does anybody like to fish? Well, yeah, we like to fish. You like to fish in the fall? Oh, absolutely. We love to come up here in the fall and, you know, hunt in the morning and in the afternoons. But then middle of the day, we love to love, love to go fishing. Well, that's real important for me because I'm not going to put a stand there over the pond if you are going to go down there every single day and fish in between hunts and disturb whatever we, you know, might have right around right. So we're going to have a long list of questions that are going to help really fine tune those goals because my, my ultimate goal is to walk away at the end of the day and that landowner have the property, obviously everything he wants it to be, but everything that he wanted it to be, but just didn't even know it. Like I want to use these questions to really reveal even the, the desires that are deep down that maybe they haven't even put words to yet or haven't even fully realized or thought through yet. I want to help them think through all of that and set up, set us up with, with a clear target and a clear direction before we ever step foot on the ground. So we're going to do all of that in a phone call um, prior to even, you know, the, the, the day of, a, of an onsite visitation. I really like that because the questions you're asking are allowing you to make sure that you can structure a property in a way that you're, you know you, you can get in, get out, not get busted, and still use the property the way that you intend to use it. Have, you know, have your cake and eat it too, in in a, in a so to speak. So so where are you going from there? You know, you've established. You know, <clears throat> I guess maybe you'd say the 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 border or the structure that maybe you're you're working with that grower and, and kind of keep going from there as you're you're taking uh foot onto the property and assessing you know from timber on through and hunting strategy you know where, where are you going from there yeah so i'm i'm gonna between that phone call and what we call our morning meeting i'm gonna have a lot of time spent on 
different mapping apps or softwares. I'm going to be looking at historical maps of the property. I'm going to be looking at topographical maps on the, of the property. I'm going to be using GIS that hopefully, you know, with some properties gets me down to one foot of elevation change. Um, not necessary for some properties just because of, you know, heavy terrain, but you get down into South Georgia, South Alabama, all of a sudden there's not a lot of terrain. There's 20 foot to 30 foot of elevation rise and fall on the entire property. Well, those one foot elevation lines are extremely important for me now. So I'm going to be doing a lot of studying of the maps, but you know, in between the process so that when I show up that first morning, uh, typically we're going to meet at a diner. We're going to shake hands. We're going to drink some coffee, have breakfast together. And we're going to talk more about the day again, addressing some of the goal, their goals for that property and come up with a bit of a game plan that I have pre-prepared, but now have a game plan for, Hey, here's, you know, my thoughts going into the property of maybe how we'll look at it, but then always come back to them and say, Hey, you know what, what's your pace? What do you want me to see? What's important for you to communicate to me? to educate me on, to show me when it comes to your property. And I've got a long checklist of things that I know that I'm going to be looking for as we travel about, as we move at the pace of the client or the landowner. And so that we make sure that we're maximizing their time, but I'm also getting the information that I need to deliver a quality plan. Great. That's, that's, uh, that, that's great. <laughs> I, I, communication is one of those things that is just, no matter what aspect of life it is so vitally important yet it's one of those things we never perfect you know what you know <coughs> excuse me my uh, my day-to-day -day job you know any lapse in communication can be you know detrimental to a crop same thing with your 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 one day that you're spending with that client and, and setting that foundation it's uh, it's extremely vital and i know you do uh, you do a lot of um in field work with that with a lot of your clients too isn't that correct yes absolutely gotcha so when you walk through a property um are you do you find that every property is going to be slightly different or do you kind of find that there are trends that you see within the whitetail world and overlapping that with hunting strategy you know, you know how do you dissect that because i know there's a lot of I'm going to say cookie cutter mentalities with how properties need to lay out versus um, using maybe the terrain or what you have with it. So, I mean, I'm kind of rambling on there, kind of, kind of roll with that. I think you kind of know where I'm going with that. Yeah, that's good. So um, there are a lot of consistencies. And, and what I'm saying here, I'm speaking of Southern properties specifically. If we were talking about Wisconsin, there are some other, you know, pretty predictable things that you're going to run into. But uh, here in the South, it's very common for us to run into a property that has been logged sometime in the, in the past. And those logging trails, logging roads have been taken over. And those are the primary way of moving about the property. That sounds great. We've got all kinds of access. I can get to any nook or cranny of this property that I want to. The problem with that is usually everything, all the traffic comes in through one main gate at the front moves into the heart of the property and spider webs out from there. Okay. Um, and as you can imagine, if the deer are, you know, being conditioned to use the core of your property, driving through that core of your property and slamming car doors and unloading four wheelers and tractors and all of that, probably not a great idea. So that's a pretty consistent thing. And then another consistent thing that I see is, you know, these roads that spider web out along the way, there are food plots put in places where it was open. You know, why, why yeah. is there a food plot there? Well, the food plot's there because that's where it was open. Yeah. It, well, where, where's the closest cover? Oh, well, we didn't really think about that or mm -hmm. hear about that. We had an open spot here and that's what we could plant. So it is what we planted. And so, you know, we're, we're taking a lot of those things and we're dealing with what we, what we can get. And, and that's not to say that, you know, that, that those things are a fault, but uh, certainly it, it's not always the best for your hunting. And, you know, with those food plots, typically we find fixed blinds that have been built and set up. And it's almost a rule that uh, if you go there right after hunting season, you are going to find a well-worn deer trail avoiding that blind very strategically. 
because of the way they are consistently hunted. Um, does that answer your question about some of the some it of the things trends that I? It absolutely does. Um, people can get patterned really easily too. Um, oh, and, and you talking about that that main gate going into the center of the property, spider web out. That that's to me describing um, what I like to call and an outside in property where you're uh you end up moving to the outside of the property because you move through the property there's no deer in the center of your property in the inside so you're on the outside waiting for them to come in and um you know while i i I don't think you're going to set every single property up that you're going to hunt and make it completely inside out that you're sitting on the outside waiting for the deer to come in but i mean the 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 concept of having a sanctuary in your property would mean that deer are centrally located somewhere on your property where they feel secure enough to come out and uh and have good access so let's shift gears a little bit josh so you know i've been doing a lot of episodes here lately talking about food plots because that's what's fresh on my mind you know we're right around the corner in pennsylvania for for planting season here you know in probably two three weeks weather permitting we'll probably be able to start doing uh perennial plantings and uh you know maybe you've already done some frost seeding clover or switchgrass or something like that and then uh, a few weeks after that we'll start planting annuals and stuff but there's a lot of other things you can be doing from now through into turkey season and uh i'm kind of curious whether it's in in your neck of the woods in georgia or if you compare it to back up in wisconsin wherever throughout the 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 country that in between that you and i kind of overlap here what are some of the things that you're really focusing on doing now from a habitat quality perspective yeah right now um, the big thing for for me is to uh, number one, if I'm, I'm working on a, on a client property, I want to make sure it's laid out to the best of my ability. Um, if if that's a service that they are interested in, because you know when I walk away, it can be it, it can be very difficult, you know, to take that plan from paper or from digital map and put it onto the ground, and then also making the necessary adjustments. You know, it it, it it's as much an art as it is a science. Once a plan is in place, to finalize locations of travel corridors, bedding areas, all that kind of thing. So not while not necessarily a habitat improvement, I am certainly looking to uh, get that property laid out the best I can. When it comes to habitat improvements, this is a fantastic time to take care of invasives, especially here in the South. I mean, it's the same way for you guys up there in PA and I know Wisconsin as well. Your invasives are typically going to leaf out way before your, your natives. There was a study done recently, and I, I forget how many more days it was, but the study from the University of Georgia, I believe. And I think natives got something like an extra 30 days of, of light uh, or of sun to the leaf, you know, for a, for a growing season. They leaf out 15 days earlier, and they keep their leaves 15 days longer or something like that. So obviously a huge advantage. But right now, bush honeysuckle is, is blowing up. Uh, a big one down here is... Um, is a Bradford pear is all over the place. It's in full bloom. Very, very obvious where that is. Leatherleaf Mahonia is another one that I'm seeing on a lot of properties. And it's an evergreen. It keeps its leaves all year. Uh, Thorny olive is another one. It's another evergreen. Heavenly bamboo is another one that is very, very obvious and easy to see this time of year. It sticks out in the woods like a sore thumb because it's really a lot of the only stuff that's only that's that's still green or that's greening up already. So from a habitat improvement perspective, I want to get in there and start taking care of those invasives because that landowner, even if I'm not there, can go in and do a real good job with some herbicide and not have to worry about overspray because nothing else is leafing out yet. So you get in there with glyphosate or some kind of broad spectrum herbicide and you're going to do limited damage to any of your native plants and wreak some havoc on those on those invasives. Another... Um, Another piece that we're focusing on very heavily right now is any timber cutting. If I've got to do anything on the ridges where I'm cutting a lot of timber, whether that's hinge cutting, flush cutting for bedding areas or travel corridors, clearing for food plots, all of that kind of stuff. I want to get all of that out of the way so that when it, when it's go time in the sense of ready to, to push the pedal to the metal on hunting strategy implementation, I want to be able to just move and not have to worry about, about the cutting and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then finally, good time of year for soil tests. Uh, that's another thing that, that I see down here. 
guys just don't take advantage of soil testing. Yeah, just, that, now yeah. you're speaking my language here. You're talking about something that literally costs you from the t- from the, the cost of sending it to a lab, including shipping and stuff, less than $20, and it's one of the most valuable starting pieces for your food plot. Absolutely. Here, I think, uh, you know, 15 bucks, and your, your local county uh, extension office will do it for you. And, you know, your, your food plots are way more attractive, way more effective. They, they, it's, they save you a ton of money in the long term um, because a consistent solution that I see is just, oh, we don't know what to do. Well, let's dump a couple hundred pounds of lime per acre and call it a day. Let's just guess and, you know, get it out there. And, uh, man, in my eyes, that's wasted money. If you don't have to do that, oh, don't, ab- you know. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of my biggest pet peeves in the hunting industry, specifically catering towards private land, is the misinformation out there about food plots and how to properly install them. That is one of the things that gets on my nerves, probably because, um, you know, my my background in ag and seeing how things are done in an efficient way and, you know, an agronomy point of view. And there's a lot of parallels when you, you put that into farming for wildlife for food plots. Um, I'm curious, you were talking about timber cutting, hinge cutting, invasives. Do you have any pet peeves or anything that's in your mind is misinformed to the general population or misunderstood about any specific topic that you just brought up and would like to kind of expand upon? Because there's a number of them that come to my mind, and I'm wondering if anything irks you a little bit. Yeah, man, I have not been in the habitat consulting world for very long, but you're about to send a flood of emails my way. Um, with this question. No, this, so I, I think, all right, there's a bunch of things. Number one, I, I think the hinge cut is misunderstood all over the place. Mm. I think the guys who say, y- you may know who these people are, <laughs> uh, never do a hinge cut. Hinge cuts are awful. We especially heard this two or three years ago. Now you go and listen to a lot of these guys today. They're all we're like, well, we use hinge cuts sometimes and, you know, mm-hmm. backpedaling just a little bit. But, um, you know, there's the, the school that says hinge cutting is not natural. It shouldn't be used. It's not a habitat improvement. Um, and, and I agree with them. It's not a timber stand improvement, uh, but it can certainly put a lot of food on the ground very quickly. Certainly. And it can certainly be a very effective bedding structure creator even if that thing doesn't stay alive you've got structure now on the ground for bedding and it can certainly dictate and direct travel really really effectively absolutely not only for deer but we use it a lot of times for the deterrent of trespassers uh we've got a ridge top that was heavily trespassed on the um at a particular property it was going to be really really difficult to span a gate wide enough to deter the four-wheeler riding and we knew people were also just walking onto the property. So we made uh, a little bit of a mess up there using hinge cuts a lot of times mm-hmm. to run a span across that top to keep people from being able to easily access the property. Um, then I think on the other side, though, the folks who think all you have to do to create a bedding area is to get into a spot and hinge cut every tree you see. Uh, I think that's misguided as well. You know, hinge cutting is not appropriate for every tree in every location. In fact, um, you know, within bedding areas, I don't hinge cut a lot. I I hinge cut maybe a third of what I see, probably less. Bigger fan of flush cutting, bigger fan of getting the sun down to the ground. And um, yes, that that to me is, is is, is a big, big one. Yeah, and one thing before I let you go on a little bit more with that, I think when you're talking about cutting trees, hinge cutting, flush cutting, it is really important that if you don't have the experience of what trees are what and what species you're working with, that is huge. I was just with a, a, um, a fellow the other day and was talking about the species that were on their property and them not knowing those species made it hard for me to then say, well, this is what you need to, to cut on here. And you know, there's a little bit more guidance with that, knowing which trees do hinge well in the first place, which trees are 
are going to give you really, really good stump regeneration? Which trees are going to be ones that if you stump cut them, they're going to regenerate from their root structure and you don't want that? You know, those are all questions that, that uh, but, but, but please keep going because I, I know I, I sparked a fire in you with that question originally. Yeah, man. So, I mean, really that hinge cutting piece is, is that, that one gets stuck in my crawl pretty good because it gets a lot of bad press where it shouldn't and it gets overused where it shouldn't be. And, and then I think right along those lines of what you're saying, um, not understanding what they're cutting, you know, hinge cutting the wrong thing. Uh, I was walking a property the other day where they had hinge cut some pine trees and, um, I get what they were going after, but it's not going to work. Right. It's, it's not going to do anything for them. It's, it's going to be, uh, first of all, the tree is going to die. It's not going to stay alive like that. Uh, and it's not doing anything in the way of, of providing forage for the deer. And, you know, up the ridge, about 40 yards, was this very large grove of, of small, scraggly, very tall maple trees that were just beginning to leaf out and, uh, or, or, you know, bud out, sort of starting to, starting to come alive for the spring. Perfect candidates if they wanted to do some hinge cutting perfect candidates for even doing some some flush cutting to get uh, all those root sprouts coming up and um you know but instead they went down the hill and they they cut the pines in a hinge cutting fashion and um yeah so understand what you're doing and and honestly for most properties it really takes you understanding five to ten tree species that are going to be the most five to ten on your most common five to ten on your property you start with that good foundation you've got what you need to get to get going with habitat improvement that's a great that's a great point, Josh. Any anything else in the the realm of invasives, timber, food plots, what have you? That uh, just one of those things that just seems misrepresented, misinformed, misunderstood, and uh, you, you'd really like to you know because it's it's got to be fresh in your mind with what you've been working with. It is, yeah. So there are, there are a couple of things. Uh, number one, there are a lot of uh, native plants that I really don't like. And I, you know, I, I know a lot of guys that it's, it can be controversial when you're controlling a native species. Eastern red cedar gets a bad rap. A lot of folks want to come in and take it out. Nobody has a problem killing all of that, but there are some other things that we run into down south. Um, you know, different, different types of small evergreens typically that grow within pine stands, uh, that, you know, people will want to not really be too aggressive on, or they just accept it as part of the, uh, as part of the landscape because, well, it's a native. I tend to take a little bit more of an aggressive stance towards them and say, it might be native, but I don't want it. You know, <laughs> I want to take that thing out of here. And, uh, especially once they've, they've gotten beyond what value they do provide, such as providing good side cover for deer or that kind of thing. I'm going to treat after that point, I'm going to treat it like an invasive. Now, a lot of people will disagree with me on that, right or wrong. Um, but, but, you know, at that point I'm thinking I'd rather something else be growing here. That's, and, a, that's a great point. And another thing I'd kind of let you spurred, uh, spurred a thought in my mind. What's your opinion? You know, we've got, um, areas up here that, you know, we've had, you know, some type of invasive bush shrub, um, kind of take over the understory, you know, under five feet, so to speak in, in certain forest types. And, uh, there's a couple different schools of thought and how to properly manage that. Um, some of the cases would be to completely eradicate it, and other people would, would say if that's the, 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 the only cover in that surrounding area, that you shouldn't take it all out at once and you should structure it. And I'm kind of curious, what are your thoughts? Can, can you replace invasives at, at that point? fairly quickly with something better or are or, or you something where you kind of like to take it um, as it comes and, and let's take uh, let's take the the workload um, you know the, the people doing the work can get it done right now you know it, you know if we wanted to say it could happen in the next few weeks it could all be done would you rather it be structured or all out at once yeah how badly do they need the cover for this coming hunting season yeah be my, my, my question if they, if they want to have that cover for hunting season, then I would tell them to maybe consider removing a section of it at a time. Um, another reason to remove a section of it at a time, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but, but I've had a little bit of experience with it and it came back to bite me. So you have a big section of something that you want to go in and take out. 
you go in, you take it all out, you disturb the seed bed. Maybe you light, lightly disc through there afterwards. Maybe you run a fire through there afterwards. And then you have a flush of other invasives that come up. Mm. Not understanding what's in the seed bank can be very detrimental to your habitat goals. So I might want to, you know, especially if this is my first year owning the property and I don't know what this spot, you know, this particular piece used to be, what kind of vegetation used to be to make up the understory here. I'm probably going to go in this fall or this winter, you know, springs right around the corner. I'm going to go in, I'm going to take out a section of it and I'm going to see how it responds first because you know, I've got the long-term, the long-term view going on. I've got, I've got, you know, my interest is what this property looks like in five or 10 years. And so I can be patient. I can wait a little bit and I can, uh, yeah, I can see how the, how it responds. And if I get a good positive response that next year, I'm taking it all out. If I get a mixed response, then I know I need to be a little bit more targeted because not only am I taking that invasive out, but I know I'm also creating more work for myself when a flush of new invasives comes in. And I've got to have the time to be able to manage that effectively as well. Do you think a lot of the quality habitat managers and, and habitat folks out there have the same end vision in their mind, but maybe the path to get there is just slightly different between each professional? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I really do. There are, there are so many tools, I think, in, in, the, in the toolkit when it comes to how to manage a property and what what ways to get back to what we want it to be. Like, let's say we want a, you know, for a lot of us down here, we want to get back and return to uh, this hillside needs to be an oak savanna or this, this valley between these hillsides needs to be a grassland with the occasional, you know, oak tree out in it or something like that. Um, you know, a lot of people are going to tell you to run fire. And if you don't use fire, then what are you even doing with your life? That's kind of the vibe going on right now, especially with all the conversation about turkeys. Like if you don't burn your property, then do you do you even care about turkeys? Um, now, I'm a big fan of fire. I've also looked landowners in the eyes and recommended fire. And they look at me like I've lost my mind. <laughs> they will never, they will never, ever, ever in their life set their land on fire, allow me to set their land on fire or allow anyone else to set their land on fire. So we've, we've got to have other tools in the toolkit. You know what I'm saying? And so I think a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of these habitat guys are out there and they, and, and they know it, right? Like they know that they've got a, a, a larger toolkit. There are things that are really effective. You know, for me, fire is the most cost effective way and one of the quickest ways to get you where you need to be. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of different, um, a lot of different tools in the, in the bag, including, you know, when you use them, you know, whether it's uh, strategic mowing, disking, fire, is it a fall fire, spring fire? Is it a, um, you know, dormant season uh, disking or is it a, you know, growing season disking or, you know, when are you, when are you going to do these things? So there's a lot of options that are out there. And uh, yeah, for the most part, you know, guys that, that I would consider, you know, part of this world, I'll just have different ideas of how to get there and, and how fastly, how, how quickly you should. I guess fastly is not a word. <laughs> we know what you mean. Yeah, there you go. I'm a redneck <laughs> in Georgia, so. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, we got rednecks in Pennsylvania, too. They, uh, yeah, they're, they're all over. They're, they're all over. There's certain dialects in Pennsylvania, more towards that central part of the Pens of Pennsylvania, where they sound right like a southern draw. <laughs> it's that Appalachian in them. <laughs> Um, and this has been a, a great conversation. I want to be mindful of your time, pal. Um, I, I want to shift the gears, uh, real quick here. So we've been talking a lot about private land and, and some of the clients and, and the thought process you work. And I, I think the big thing I take away is, you know, you know, I, I truly believe anything in life and, and this is no exception that, there, there's there's wisdom when you have a lot of counsel. When, when you can take a lot of advice from well-respected individuals with different thought processes and, and pick apart what is going to work for your property and learn as much as possible and put that into place, I think there's wisdom in that. And I think that will get you a long way if you're trying to, to go this route and you know fine-tune your, your property and your, your skills and stuff like that. I know I do it. I learned a lot from this conversation with you tonight. But I'd kind of like to shift gears a little bit. What do you 
at most excited about for deer season this upcoming fall? And are you doing anything for your own deer hunting right now? Man, I, I wish I could say I have been doing a lot for my own deer hunting. I have, I've gotten out to postseason scout a little bit. Um, you know, we do have private ground that we can hunt, uh, that we hunt in Alabama. I love the challenge of public ground deer hunting. And so looking forward to maybe trying a few new places this year, obviously looking forward to a return to the Midwest. I mean, what deer hunter in the country doesn't want to go hunt big bucks in the Midwest. So I will certainly be, you know, back in the Midwest this fall, uh, and really excited about some of this new territory where I'm hunting here. Um, you know, we've got a family farm that's that sets up really nice and it's a week of comfortable, nice hunting when I go down there. And uh, we've also got a 30,000 acre piece of public right down the road from me here that I can be to in about 25 minutes. And I've been piecing that apart and it is monotonous timber, but they just ran a big fire through this thing. Wow. And uh, have burned a huge when I say huge, I mean truly gigantic burn, probably one of the bigger burns that I've ever seen done, you know, on, on a single year on a property. So I'm excited to see how that turns out and how that changes the hunting and, and um, yeah, what, what we've got going on. But, man, I got, I got to tell you, I'm, uh, I'm pretty distracted by the spring gobblers right now. So uh, as much as I'm looking forward to deer season, I got a lot of, uh, got a lot of work to do between now and then in the turkey woods. <laughs> it's amazing how, like, one gobble or one sighting of a strutter can completely throw my mind off. My, uh, I was talking to my boss on the phone this week, and we were talking about work-related things. I'm driving in my car, and I'm mid-conversation, mid-sentence with him on something, and I looked down in the field and I went, wow, that's a big gobbler. And he just <laughs> laughed at me. He's just like, are they open yet? Just shoot it. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, man, I, I saw a big Tom strutting the other day, and um, – yeah, that got me all distracted. I was actually on this uh, property yesterday. We were wrapping up. It was almost dark. We'd been cutting in bedding areas and just working hard all day. And I'm walking down the road to get back to the truck, and I see a big gobbler track. So I'm immediately taken from whitetail mode all day long to big gobbler track in the middle of the road. Now I'm, you know, it's it's dusk, so I'm listening for listening for gobbles off in the distance. <laughs> Do you have any? goals for yourself for this upcoming season whether that's spring gobbler or into the deer season yeah man you know with 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 turkey season i i think i want to um my goal is to, to to get my kids a bird so really really looking forward to we joined a small lease here well i say small but maybe larger up in pa for georgia it's a small lease it's about 2500 acres um so a little bit smaller than some of the other leases that I've been on in the past, but looking forward to getting my kids a bird. And then for this, um, for this fall hunting season, really just looking forward to continuing to sharpen my, my skill set when it comes to chasing down big bucks on public land. I've, I was talking to a guy yesterday, knock on wood. You know, I feel like these last two years I've really dialed in a style of hunting that works for me. I've found, you know, the secret sauce, at least, from my own personal way of hunting and really excited to put that to the test for another year. And um, not saying I'm going to hold out for a bigger buck than the one I got this past year, but, but excited to, to at least get out there and chase them around one more time. Absolutely. I like the, it's the, it's the, it's the chase and the, what gets you there. It's not the end result. That's right. Absolutely. Josh, buddy, thanks so much for, for chatting with us. Um, I love this conversation. This is the kind of stuff that gets me excited. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, Mitch, thanks for having me on, man. Looking forward to having you on uh, my How to Hunt Deer podcast here soon. Looking forward to it.